0: Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and
1: frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our deeply technical series. Hello and welcome to Codish. I'm your host for today, Chris Castle. I'm a developer advocate at uh, Salesforce, focus on Heroku mostly. And today, our topic is going to be the W3C, Um, maybe a phrase that a lot of you have have heard or a name a lot of you have heard, but maybe you don't know too much about it. And specifically, we're going to be chatting with Toby Langell. Toby is an open source and web standards strategist for companies like Google, Microsoft, Mozilla, um, and he's an avid open source contributor. Uh, Welcome, Toby. Can you share a little bit more about yourself with us?
0: So, um, indeed, most of the work I do um, right now is consulting work and strategic work around open source and how open source can benefit companies. My background is actually in web development and software development that I got into, um, well, now a number of years ago. And so, as a result of um, being involved in software development, I ended up um, trying to understand how um, web standards uh, were designed. And so that's how I ended up being so involved with the W3C. That's
1: right. So that's a good segue into our topic. What is the W3C?
0: So at its heart, the W3C is an organization that was started by uh, Tim Berners-Lee shortly after he invented uh, the web a long time ago. Um, That is a place um, where the standards that define the web are being built, Um, And so it's a consortium of different industry players you have in there, uh, the browser vendors, but also lots of other players, um, universities, governments, uh, lots of different stakeholders that come together and basically decide on how HTML and CSS and some other related technologies are designed. All of the JavaScript APIs, for example, on the browser are -hmm. designed by W3C or rather at W3C.
1: So... The W3C effectively like enables the website that I load in in Safari to also work in, or lays the groundwork, I guess. Let me know if this is correct for the websites I load in Safari to also work the same in Firefox or Chrome or uh, Brave or whatever browser we're using.
0: Absolutely. So the the whole point of the standardization effort is to be able to build software using. Um, different technologies, so you know, different browsers are built differently um, and can actually render the same uh, web page in, in the same way for the end user. So the standardization is the piece that makes it possible for um, me to build a website and you to see that website as I intended it to be uh, perceived, uh, regardless of what browser you're using, what device you're on, et cetera.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I remember back in the, maybe I'm dating myself, back in the 90s, using the web, there was like often these little logos or buttons on the bottom of a web page that would be like, works best in Internet Explorer 4 or something like that. Um, and now
0: you don't see those. Right, so you always have this tension between um, wanting to provide new APIs to do new things on the browser, mm, right?
1: Right. You always want to innovate. Yeah. Create something new and better for the user.
0: Right. Which makes sense. And at the same time, if everyone does that, was um, you know, basically no consultation, no one actually talks to each other, then you end up with a very fragmented um, web, mm-hmm. um, which is what you had a long time ago. But we're seeing some of this again today. It's it's not uncommon um, now to see uh, software uh, sorry websites web applications that are only um, uh, that only work well in Chrome you even see sometimes like works best in with uh, you know Chrome or, or comments of that nature on websites again so this sort of tension between um, innovation on one hand and wanting to be able to share documents across lots of different, um, browsers on the other uh, is not like it's a tension that will never be resolved, right? This is always yeah, something okay. that as developers will have to be, uh, we have to be careful about uh, if we don't want to sort of run into the same kind of problems that we did when things were not standardized and um, Internet Explorer decided to stop innovating because it had mm-hmm. won all the market shares. And we ended yep. up in this really bad place for a number of years, where the web was like there was no innovation on the web at all, right? It was yep. well, we were just waiting for uh, basically for Mozilla to come along and, and and create competition again.
1: Personally, I'm actually just running into this right now on a project I'm working with uh, using web push notifications. We have in this web application a little message that comes up if you open it in Safari that says, "Hey, it doesn't work." In Safari, you gotta switch over to Chrome or I think Firefox uh, for the the web push notifications to work um, in this in this demo application.
0: Yeah, it's not solved. Will never be solved. But yeah,
1: but it's nice. It seems nice though that like it's the kind of the best of both worlds, right? Like we we need innovation. I, I want innovation as a developer, but also as a web user. But then I also want at some point like the good innovations or the best innovations to be standardized so that they can be become normal and used uh, by everyone, not just like super technical people or people who are running like Safari technology preview or, or one of the uh, Chrome canary editions.
0: Yeah. So we're getting there. I mean, the, the browser vendors have put on a number of um, tools and and processes and practices to make it um, easier to, for example, ship experimental APIs Mm -hmm. to a subset of their users that would, um, Sign up for that, so that you yeah. could actually test and iterate over the API. See if it fulfills the the actual real need of the developers, uh, but not ship it to the whole world at the same time. So then you don't have to sort of like standardize it, right? Because that, yeah. that's the that's the, the other aspect of the web that's interesting. The web is still in on version one, right? There is no yeah. different versions like you have for even languages, right? I mean, you can run, uh, you know, PHP has different versions and you can't run like something on five that also runs on three. Well, guess what? That's not true of, of, for the, for web, right? A a website that was built like, uh, two decades ago runs pretty much okay on the browser today. Right? Like at least you can get to the content. Maybe you won't have all of the bells and whistles, but you can get to the content. So the, 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 there's this really strong ethos, um, in, in the standard bodies uh, that if something has been pushed in the web and is widely adopted, you can't take it out. Yep. So that makes um, iterating over a new API is kind of like a difficult thing to do.
1: And you, you need to say, I'm not just building this thing and throwing it out there, but I'm building this thing. And we as a group agree that this is an important thing that will persist, and we're all going to agree to maintain its functionality in the exactly. future. Exactly. As a developer advocate, I create fun demos all the time and I use the marquee tag, uh, is an HTML yeah. tag <laughs> in, in a demo. And it, I think it still works in most browsers, but when I went on the, um, uh, Mozilla developer network sites or pages to, to look at that, it, it explicitly says like, Hey, the marquee tag is deprecated. Like that's not <laughs> supported anymore in, in browsers. Um, you know, even though it still does work, but you know, that's one of the few examples of something being taken out. But I, you know, like you said, for the most part, everything is
0: still works. It's it's a funny tangent, actually. The Marquee tag is now implemented, I think, in the browsers that still support it as a CSS animation. Ah, uh, okay, right. So it's like you know, and like they removed all of the code that actually did the Marquee tag originally, right? Yep. And it's now basically just a way to have a div with a subset of like CSS animations already like built into it, yeah. which is kind of yeah. funny, right?
1: Yeah, it's just like syntastic sugar. Yeah,
0: right. and to tell you to what length, um, uh, you know, browser vendors and standards people will actually go to make sure that we don't break the web.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, so let's talk about the standardization process a little bit, at least. In that, um, you know, we we kind of alluded to, or you alluded to, that the fact that like these are kind of very big and weighty decisions that are made to make what maybe seem like trivial or small changes. Um so can you talk a little bit about like the the standardization process I guess and the weight and and how like you know most people think or or maybe the layperson maybe you're getting into development would think that like oh you know we have bold as like a a css style or a font weight um changing that to something else seems trivial and small like i could write code that does that pretty easily but when you talk about like bringing that into a standardization process and all the steps that happen have to happen and all the conversations that happen, it's much different than just like oh this trivial small like change of a string. Can you talk about like that process? Like what is what happens in a standardization process? How does it get kicked off or start? Not specifically for the W three C, but just generally for standards bodies.
0: Right. So the W three C works in a way that is actually fairly similar to how a large um, for example, like a large open source project would work at this point. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's fairly different from what you can imagine from um, other standard bodies which are um, more structured or have like governments involved or like the OSI Mm. or things like that, right? So it's still a very, I mean, the people that are doing the work are very technical. It's very technical work. So what generally happens is, uh, either it's new tech that's being brought to uh, a standardization working group that needs to be standardized, or it's old tech that exists in the browsers and that hasn't really ever been standardized and that we're still catching up to try to spec, right? So it's kind of like you have these two different scenarios. Um, the other way that um, things could happen also is you have an idea, you bring it to um, a working group, and you start specking out how you would want that idea to work. Mm-hmm. And then you bring in the browser vendors and check with them if w- the suggestions you have make sense and if they would be okay to implement it given how it's been written down.
1: And then there, I assume there's probably also some convincing of of them right if like if google comes and says hey we want to add uh like web push notification functionality so that a website can for good or bad pop up push notifications on my my desktop browser i I assume you're going to want to get the people that build safari and the people that build firefox and other browsers to say yes we will support that also
0: yeah, so there's an important factor you have to take into account is for something to become a W3C recommendation, it has to have at least two different rendering engines. So mm-hmm. basically two different browser engines from different that have a different code base, right? Uh, have implemented successfully that specification. That's at the point at which it becomes a recommendation. And the reason for that is you don't want to build a specification and recommend that specification for others if it is actually not implementable and not interoperable, right? Mm -hmm. So the two things that you have to make sure when you write a spec is, A, everyone reads the spec and understands what it says in the spec the same way and are able to build it on the architecture that they have, right? And then secondly, that when they do, the outcome for the web developer is the same on both browsers. Right, yeah. Can it be implemented, and is it interoperable? Those are the two questions. And if you answer yes for these two questions, and you can answer that question only when you have two browsers that have done both, right, Um, then at that time, you can actually say that this is a recommendation, um, so it's it's considered like a finished standard to some degree.
1: Okay. Are there like future states of, of no, this? No,
0: that's the ultimate state.
1: Okay. Right? Okay.
0: In practice, a number of um, groups today have adopted what are called living standards. Mm, Um, where basically um, the process is a bit different and the standard is there to reflect the reality of the implementations. Okay. And so nothing makes it into the standard that is not widely implemented. Uh, So it's kind of like they're constantly in recommendation status, if you will, Uh, but they're getting modified.
1: That's interesting. My really only exposure to something similar to this has been through the the TC thirty nine process, which is yeah. um, really how like how JavaScript is is uh, or EcmaScript maybe is the right way to call it say it is developed or new features are added to that. And the stages they have, I think, are like proposal, draft, and then candidate and finished. It's interesting just to see how like different organizations um, have needs for kind of different stages going through right. there. And some uh, obviously simpler is better, but some need more apparently to actually get something like. Fully finished and kind of like agreed upon by many different kind of uh, competing parties.
0: Yeah, TC thirty nine is quite similar to W three C and Whatwg, which is an, another group that um, sits also in, in in this space. So th- they all have you know all of these different SDOs and in, in in that. Language slash web development area have sort of very diff- very similar processes. Uh, sometimes they have different names for it, but they're in general it, it's quite close. If you're working yeah. effectively with TC39, it will not take you a lot of time to work effectively with W3C, for example. Gotcha. Right, it, it, yeah. it's quite similar. Uh, what's interesting that W3C and WHATWG have that others don't is there's a very important distinction between an organization that is standardizing a language Mm -hmm. versus an organization that is standardizing something that ends up sort of as is in um, the hands of lay people,
1: right? Mm, Okay.
0: Because that makes a huge difference. You know, consider that. Like if you change something to the the Java language, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It will not make a difference at all to people using uh the web to to buy I don't know goods for example or, or, or learn about the news right like right, they will right. not know people that visit the web do not know what language is used behind it right, right. and and nor do they care no nor does it matter to them. However imagine suddenly if you standardize that paragraphs are shown like the wrong way around. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah uh, or something like that. This directly yeah. affects end users. And as a result, um, the process at W3C and WhatWG includes that um, not only in like using a framework to actually think about that, which is called the priority of constituencies, right? Mm -hmm. Which basically says that whenever there's a disagreement about something, you will have to take into consideration first and foremost how this will impact the end user. Yep. And once you do that, you will be able to consider how it impacts web developers. Mm, and once okay. you do that, you will be able to consider how it uh, impacts implementers of the specs, or so browser vendors. And yep. once you do that, you will have you will be able to impact to see how it impacts the editors actually writing the specs. Okay. And only once you've done all of that can you consider actual technical purity arguments. Okay. Wow, So it has this really, really interesting framework, which actually I think is a really important framework that I would like to see more adoption of, or like similar models for open source, because it really takes care of all of the different players and all yeah. of the different people that are impacted by the software and understands uh, breadth of the impact, right? Because you know if you change something today, um, and it impacts the way people consume the web. You're impacting billions of people. So when when you're actually writing a spec, you have to have that in mind, right? Because yeah. when you're talking about uh, accessibility, for example, for billions of people, at the level of billions of people, people that have trouble accessing the web f- because they have, um, uh, for example, because they're legally blind or have like eyesight issues or um, you know c- cognitive issues or lots of different issues. When you're talking about that scale, you're talking yeah. about you're affecting millions of people, right? So these these decisions at that level make uh, are super important, and so that's why there's more process and more outside stakeholders involved in an organization like w3c then you will see in tc39 because at the end of the day javascript affects people that are implementing javascript and no one else
1: i like that uh that hierarchy it seems like it would make a lot of um uh discussions about open source contributions like pull request discussions for instance new features bug fixes things like that it seems like it would make the discussions simpler, almost almost automatic in, in many ways, um, as opposed to like, I think you should change your code to do this, or I think you should change the style of your, you know, use semicolons or don't use semicolons. Right,
0: absolutely. And yes, I think it's one of the most um, interesting, useful tools that have come out of W3C and, and what we do in, in the standardization process. And yeah. I, like, there was not one discussion when it's not, um, you know, when someone doesn't bring that tool up and say, well, okay, <laughs> so, you know, let's figure out like how, who do we have to consider in this conversation, right? And how it impacts the different people. And it really helps to make decisions. So let's,
1: we're, I want to chat about the spec editing process and the tools, um, Absolutely. these like small, simple tools that you have created um, and maintain for that. But before we get there, I just wanted to make sure it's clear to people. There, there are two acronyms that that we've been talking about, W3C. And what WG, can you say what the the full name of those two
0: things are? So W3C stands for World Wide Web Consortium. Okay. So it's the three W's of World Wide Web. And uh, the C is for Consortium. And what WG stands for Web Hypertext Application Technology Working Group. Uh, there's been there's a whole history between W3C and w 3 that we will we'll not get into but <laughs> okay. uh, it's it's sort of like uh, uh there's been um lots of uh disagreement uh, and infighting over the years uh between um essentially pragmatic factions and more theoretical purist factions okay. um and uh we actually really recently arrived at some form of agreement between these two factions
1: yeah it does Feel esoteric and kind of like academic or theoretical, and so I think yeah a lot of a lot of developers depend on the W three C or the standards that these bodies have created, but very often don't know like what happened in the sausage factory, right? Like what happened to to produce these these standards? Absolutely, and that it was not so simple. But and so one of those steps is spec editing, right? Is creating a spec and then kind of iteratively and collaboratively editing that spec can you talk about that process a little bit and and then like the the application that you maintain to support that
0: so um the way specifications were uh, designed a long time ago was basically using word documents you know sort of collaborating on on word documents over a decade ago and then just like (laughs) emailing them yeah and so bit by bit uh, people started building dedicated tools to do spec editing right so there's a number of those Uh, that have been built over the years. Um, I mean, you have to understand that a specification is essentially a really large document was a huge amount of text that is cross-referenced. You know, imagine you, you explain uh, how to do a marquee tag somewhere. Um, and that marquee tag, when you explain it and like it's pointing to, well, now it's pointing to how do you do a CSS animation and how you do this other thing. And so you start having like this massive amount of cross referencing all over the place uh, that you have to understand and track. Because um, let's say that you move a recommendation, um, a specification to uh, recommendation status, right? And it's uh, based on a number of uh, other specifications that are not ready at all. And where there's a ton of disagreement, you're not mm-hmm. going to be able to move uh, the one that you're working on uh, to like wide adoption if like it's standing on not solid ground.
1: Right. Yeah. There's this dependency tree. kind of
0: Exactly. So... To sort of simplify this, people started building their own um, tools. um, Essentially, they're essentially, it's like at the end of the day, what it looks like is sort of a a markdown um, or like some, you know, some kind of like weird markup uh, was a ton of tool to do cross referencing of APIs, of protocols, of like CSS properties, of all of the different kinds of things that you find in the in the spec world um and so um, i helped move a lot of this work to github when github started being a thing now like close to a decade ago and to start sort of like using processes for building specs and you know uh, the what we G group did that independently on on their side at roughly the same time right to start editing specs on GitHub rather than what was used before, which was SVN or like CVS, uh, you know, CVS for real. Yeah. Uh, So (laughs) really old versioning systems, and sort of like really uh, benefit from the same kind of like um, culture that you find in open source uh, development, right? Um, Where you have pull requests, where you can make comments on those, where you can um, work on this thing together.
1: Yeah. Have conversations about, a large body of text or even, you know, make comments on individual lines.
0: Um, Absolutely, right. And I mean, um, you know, a, a lot of specs is actually written in pseudo code, right? You have algorithms that are just written in language, but the language is specified so clearly that you could... You're close to being able to run it. Like it's it's really close to code. A lot of it yeah. is. So this whole spec editing process, because of the way these tools are designed, it made it really difficult to sort of see what exactly was coming in. Right. Either you would have um, you would be working off of the built version of that tool, and so it was full of. It was basically a full blown up. Um, uh, HTML document was lots of tags all over the place. And so it was really hard to read. Or you were working off of the um, uh, actual underlying uh, sort of like Markdowny language.
1: Yeah. And
0: uh, you didn't have any sense of whether the connections were working properly and if things were actually uh, the way you wanted them to be. And a number of years back, I started working for Google as the editor of the Web IDL spec. And the WebIDL spec is a specification that describes the language that is used to specify web APIs.
1: Okay, we're going meta.
0: Totally, right? And it does something really interesting and impressive. It defines JavaScript bindings for that language. And so whenever you see in a specification this weird thing that is describing what the API looks like, which is called WebIDL, The Mm -hmm. benefit of doing it that way is a browser vendor can basically copy paste that code into their code base and it generates all of the JavaScript, all of the bindings from JavaScript to C++ or whatever underlying language they're using without having to write a single line of code, right? It creates all of the interfaces, Mm -hmm. it creates everything. But that language has to be described, right? And uh, you have no idea how complex that spec is and how hard it is and like i never started a project in my life where i felt so out of like place and out of touch was what my role was and what it was supposed to do it was really difficult really scary and it was really complicated like basically you had to have a super good understanding of everything that was in the ecmo script spec, which is a yep. huge document, super yeah. complicated, right? In order to be basically able to rewrite all of the DOM APIs or uh in terms of the underlying algorithms and definitions that were in the ECMAScript uh, script spec. So very difficult. It took me quite a while to get, like, on board, to feel comfortable with it. but And quickly in this process, I realized that whenever pull requests were coming from, like, people that were contributing to it and that were more senior than I and knew the spec way better, uh, I just literally had no idea what what they were changing or how it related to the rest of the spec. I mean, the document is huge. I think it's, like, 80,000 words. Yeah. Um, And (laughs) so, you know, I needed a tool to do that, to understand what fit. And so... Um, I figured what if I can actually help if I can actually find a way to build that spec um, automatically and you know like have an update in the diff an HTML diff yeah of so I can just see like what does it change to the outcome not what does it change to the underlying source code yeah that would be extremely useful and so I kind of like looked whether I could build that. And it turned out that there was a number of services that already existed. So the um, editing software that was used, uh, which was an open source project, had a service that existed for it. You could basically just send your source code via an HTTP request and get a build back. So that was a thing. W3C had um, a HTML diff that existed for some other project that was also a service. It was like, wow, I can actually just build this thing really easily basically relying on these different services. Um, and so I was sort of like my coding itch was scratching. And so I, I, <laughs> I pulled some Node code together and like over a couple of days, you know, built sort of like a, a prototype for this, shipped it and it was great. It would, you know, basically just very simple, do all of the work in the in uh, whenever there was a new pull request, it would just build everything in the back. And then just at the bottom of the the, the pull request, it would add, a link to the page, the page that was, um, done, uh, you know, like the, the, the build version and to a diff of it. Right. Yeah. And that was like tremendously useful. And, and like very quickly, everyone came to me and said, um, well, like, can I have this for my own spec place? mm Okay. Right? And, and this is when you, you get a sense of, Oh, I've built something here that is useful for others. Yeah.
1: That's cool. And I think that's like, yeah, that's like very often we all have the same problems, probably more than I ever realize. And so it's fun to create little things that solve problems. And then, yeah, you have this realization that like, oh, my gosh, other people are similar to me. They have the same problem. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. I have kind of followed or gone on the same path as as a tinkerer and software developer.
0: Right. I think we all have.
1: So what does, how did you generalize or how did you then kind of make this? This personal tool, usable by others, usable by people, kind of in a way that you know didn't become your full full time job, maintaining it, uh, making it making it work. Because I think very often that's that's actually like the hurdle that I get stuck at is like. Oh, I've created this little thing for myself that's helpful to automate something, but like sharing it with other people requires like kind of polishing some of the rough the rough spots. Um, maybe writing some documentation, maybe fixing like the UI to be more intuitive. Um, yeah. So what 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 went into like making it useful for others?
0: So I think I was kind of lucky uh, because there was a ton of constraints that I couldn't do much about. And that really limited um, my ability to fall in the trap of like polishing stuff for ages, right? The first one was there was basically no UI. The only UI I had access to was I can either add a comment to the pull request or I can mm-hmm. modify the body of the text of the pull request and add yeah. something at the bottom. Yep. So that basically means like your UI is, you know, the maximum you can do is like a link.
1: Well, and the UI, isn't the UI also kind of the rendered? document and the diff
0: yeah okay that's a fair point i did or maybe that's
1: like an artifact
0: yeah i i mean i did write a piece of a small piece of javascript code that lets you um sort of like navigate through the the diff kind of easily from diff to diff but it's not like the best piece of software in the world but it does the job uh but yeah there were those were essentially artifacts of the build tools anyway Right. Yeah. So what I did, the only thing that I did there was, you know, add a bit of like um, um, configuration that you could store on GitHub to configure um, how exactly you wanted your build to be rendered for your specific spec. Uh, And so, you know, I was constrained by UI being like you can't do a lot, and like in a few links at the bottom of, of of a body of text on GitHub, right? GitHub APIs doesn't let you do that much. Uh, I certainly didn't want to be in the business of maintaining a database. Also, yeah, because like really? it's not something I know how to do well. So what yeah. I wanted was something that was stateless, like no UI, um, and also something that I wouldn't have to maintain long-term. And that was mm-hmm. super, super simple. So that's why I yeah. went was like a microservice architecture. And also okay. because those microservices existed. Those services existed, right? So it was just essentially writing glue code. The only thing I really added was an S3 uh, instance to basically cache and host the, the outputs because like my prototype right. had no caching. Right, like yeah. it would re-render every time.
1: Oh, okay, so okay.
0: That was kind of costly, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, okay.
0: Uh, so S three caching, and and that was frankly like uh, trivial to set up on the S three front, except for the permissions, which I <laughs> I'm not going to get into that. Yeah, you know. But for me, what like the the key point, and I'm and I'm not saying that because I'm actually like on uh, on a you know uh, on the podcast that's like a Heroku Salesforce podcast. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. To me, the key was Heroku actually made like the whole maintenance setup um, of that thing, like sort of like a fire and forget thing. Mm -hmm. I've moved on from spec editing for like, what, three, four years at this point. And like these apps still run and still power pretty much all of the spec editing that's happening in those standard bodies. Right. Oh, wow. Uh, So this is something that, you know, people have been asking for, for example, right?
1: Right. And so there's two tools, right? There's spec ref and there's PR preview. That's right. Can you just briefly explain like what, what is kind of like the the small simple problem or the small simple thing that each one does?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So SpecGraph is basically a in-memory database that's built from JSON files that um, stores all of the cross all of the references to other specs and other standards, right? Okay. So I don't even know how many it has. Probably like thirty thousands uh, or something like that. Thirty thousand, I think. It um, says.
1: 45,416 references and countings right now oh, on wow. specref.org. So,
0: see, there are more than, <laughs> than I thought there were because a lot of it is automated. It pulls, it actually pulls the data from different data sources, different mm-hmm. standard bodies, and like sort of like uh, mashes them into a single JSON format yeah. that's used by every spec in the web field to reference other specs. So if you see at the bottom of a spec references to other standards, it's using that tool. And it's used gotcha. also elsewhere uh, for testing purposes. You know, If you want to uh, connect a test to a spec, it's also relying on that database. Mm-hmm. So it's really focused on that. And then PR Preview is really the tool that basically builds uh, the spec from your pull request and does a diff against the um, uh, master of your... Uh, repository and compares them yeah gotcha what i really like about them is uh yeah it's the fire and forget and that they were really built with uh, very little resources in mind and um not wanting to make things complicated and wanting to make things sustainable and maintainable in the long term right which is why you have these really weird um sort of like this architectural choices like the in-memory database, right? I mean, I knew that the standards would not grow to more than like 100 to 200K. I looked at like... How big of a, of a foot, a memory footprint that was. I looked at what Heroku was offering in terms of, um, memory footprint for, um, yeah. apps, right? And it was just yeah. like, oh, I, I can, I can hold like, I can't remember what the number was, but like a million or like, I, you know, okay. like the number of entries I could hold in memory was like massively bigger than what we would, what we would ever have. Yep. Um, and so that was an easy choice. It just like builds them from JSON files every time it reloads. So like once a day, I think. And that works. It's super fast as a result. Like there are no connection problems. You can't overload the database. I mean, so many problems just disappear, right?
1: Yeah, removing, I agree. Like when I start building apps, I'm like, okay, time to add a database. And it's like, okay, now there's this whole other layer of complexity that I've added in. Um, I mean, like state in general, just managing state is such a a complex thing. Yeah,
0: And, And the cool thing is I'm basically using that JSON file and GitHub as a crud for awesome. uh, you know and, and I don't need to handle um, like there are I don't know 40 50 contributors to the, to the repository yeah and they just add stuff right yeah and they also use like the scheduler to run mm-hmm. a script that ba- every hour that basically um, goes and fetch the, the latest uh, spec from uh, you know ISO, uh, uh, w3c, what weG a lot IETF, of them at this yeah. point, yeah. There's a, like there's a bunch of them. Uh, I I yep. think like um, C plus uses it for its uh, spec also, so it has all of their issues in there. So like there's a really a lot of references in, in in that database, and it's done hourly. And again, like it works, right?
1: Yeah, great. So this this is all really really cool, Toby. Do you have anything else that uh, like maybe some parting words that you'd like to to share with software developers? Maybe you know interested in standards bodies or things like that. Um, the process of Building software or building specs for software developers. Um, before we before we finish up,
0: yeah. So I think um, if I could leave you with two pointing thought, one would be around software development. One of the things that I really learned and loved about building these really tiny tools is really like using basic tools and. Actually engineering the right solution to the specific problems that you're facing rather than relying on like a huge framework that you have to learn and then um, use in a particular way and sort of like rely on all of this sometimes cruft that is not necessarily adapted to the precise thing that you're trying to do. Yes. So for me that was a huge lesson. It's actually a lesson that I learned in part at Facebook um, uh, when I was an engineer there, because uh, it's, it's a company that was um, really really focused on cutting through the chase and like finding the right solution for the job, um, and not bothering was like you know industry best practices or yep. things like that. But really like what is the solution that you need? Build that. So I'm, I'm glad I could put it in practice um, for these two little apps. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, um, you know, we've talked a lot about standard bodies. I remember when I was a developer, they felt like ivory towers, right? Like far away, unreachable, complex. I agree with that. And and sometimes, frankly, they are. And, you know, that's a feeling on our part, the people that are actually writing those specs and, and doing that work. Um, but what you have to understand is, as weird as it sounds, when you look at all of the corporations that are involved with those, um, these organizations are critically understaffed. And the number of people that actually understand the complexity of the web platform and are able to effectively contribute as editors of specs are tiny, tiny. Mm. Like the bus factor of all of this is like really, really, <laughs> really big, right? Yeah. And so a lot of the time, it, people would love to have more help, would love to get um, uh, input from develop more input from developers, and they just have little time to actually do that. So now that a lot of the work has moved to GitHub, part of the point of doing that was to make it more accessible to developers, right? Yeah. Makes um, sense. And so, if you want to get involved, like sort of figuring out what specs actually touch on the things that you know and care about in the web, and seeing the activity that's going on in those specs. And making comments or opening issues there, I think that's an effective way to like gently start tiptoeing into it. Uh, But watch out though, because that's kind of like how I started a long time ago, and you know, at some point, I ended up editing a spec about uh, spec editing, right? Yeah, (laughs) as I said before. So (laughs) it it, it is a rabbit hole.
1: Yeah, it can get deep. You can get sucked in, and I'm sure when. When someone notices your interest, someone within the organization notices your interest, they're like, oh, I want to bring this person in and help them yeah. you know, help us and increase our capacity. Absolutely. So that's cool. Thanks, Toby, for for joining us. I really appreciate it. I learned a ton here, so appreciate you um, sharing a little bit of your of your wisdom here with us.
0: Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure being there. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Kodish Podcast. Kurdish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Kurdish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit us at heroku.com/slash podcasts.